0: the inner voice is a tool it's a tool of the mind and when we use it the right way it can bring us much happiness it can help us be successful and productive but when used the wrong way it can be enormously destructive for our health for our relationships for our ability to perform so it's about figuring out how to use that tool how do you harness it so you don't slip down the rabbit hole hi my name is rongan Chasji. Welcome
1: to Feel Better, Live More. So before we start today, I've got a question for you. Do you have a voice inside your head? Well, for most of us, the answer is a resounding yes. And we often turn to this voice for guidance, for ideas, for wisdom, but sometimes... This voice can lead us down a rabbit hole of negative self-talk and endless rumination. So is it possible to take back control and harness the power of this so-called inner chatter? Well, this is the question the award-winning psychologist and my guest on this week's podcast, Ethan Cross, set out to answer 20 years ago when he began to study the conversations that we have with ourselves. Now, in his brand new book, Chatter, Ethan combines groundbreaking research with real life examples to illustrate how our inner voice controls our life. The language we use about ourselves, he says, can be incredibly powerful. Yes, there is negative self-talk, but that same voice can also help us innovate, problem solve, fantasize, rationalize, and in many ways helps to shape our identity. You see, it's our inner voice that makes us unique as humans. So rather than silencing the chatter, we need to learn how to harness it. Now, if this all sounds intriguing, but too good to be true, rest assured, this conversation is packed with super practical advice from the very start. You're going to find out why it's not always good to talk, that sometimes in the moment is not the best place to be, what distant self-talk is and how it can help us, how to harness the placebo effect, how to support others through their chatter, when social media is helpful and when it's not, how rituals and all create control and perspective, and while you might want to consider putting together your own board of advisors This episode really is full of actionable tips that will help you redirect your inner chatter away from rumination and self-criticism towards reflection and self-improvement. I think this is a powerful conversation and I hope you enjoy listening. Before we get started, just giving a quick shout out to Blue Blocks Glasses, one of the sponsors of today's show. Now, there's no question that getting high-quality sleep is one of the most impactful things that we can do for our health and well-being. You see, sleep is when our brain clears out a lot of the metabolic waste that builds up inside it throughout the day. And a chronic lack of sleep can negatively impact our well-being in a variety of different ways, affecting our mental health, our relationships, and our ability to focus and concentrate. Now, one of the biggest obstacles today to good quality sleep is excessive blue light exposure, particularly in the evenings. And that's why I'm a huge fan of blue blocks and have been wearing their glasses for over two years now. They make really high quality lenses that protect you from the damaging effects of too much blue light. Now I personally have got two pairs. I wear their clear lenses in the day if I'm going to be on my computer for long periods of time and therefore exposed to lots of artificial light and I've got to say it's really helped me with my focus, my ability to concentrate and also reduce fatigue levels. I know from feedback from many of you that this can also help with eye strain and headaches from spending a lot of time in front of your screens. I've also got a prescription pair of their red lens glasses which I wear in the evenings if I'm going to be on my laptop or phone and I can definitely notice a difference in the quality of my sleep. I've been so impressed with their glasses. That my wife and children also have their own pairs. If you want to try them out, they are offering 15% off any glasses on their website for all of my podcast listeners. Simply use the discount code livemore at the checkout for 15% off, or you can go direct to their website. That's blueblocks.com forward slash livemore, dot com forward slash More and the discounts will be automatically applied. And now, my conversation with Dr. Ethan Cross.
0: The book is about the inner voice, and the inner voice can have a positive manifestation. And what I mean by that is our ability to use language to reflect on our lives this is a superpower. It helps us innovate, problem solve, create. It helps us author the story of of who we are, helps shape our identity. So these are amazing qualities that you you want to be able to, to use and harness throughout your life. But then, of course, there's the negative side, which is the chatter, the worry, the rumination, the catastrophization.
1: Yeah. If we don't harness that power, it can take us down the wrong track you know, Ethan, as a as a doctor, I'm really interested as to how the voice inside our heads can affect our physical health. So I guess what I'm looking to understand is: can chatter make us ill?
0: Uh, well, and I, I think the answer to that question is yes. And it um it's interesting because I think many people can easily relate to having the experience of stress. But for throughout time, stress has been this this kind of abstract thing that happens in your head. And things that happen in your head have lacked the same kind of concreteness. We can't feel it the same way that we can uh, you know, we can feel a a wound swell in our body or see like our arteries get filled with with plaque and um, other things that you know create lead to heart attacks and things like of that sort. So So I think actually the brain imaging that has evolved over the past 20 years has helped a lot with that in the in terms of helping people see how stress can manifest in the brain and how that can in turn have downstream implications for health. But the way this works, the, the snapshot that exists, so how does stress actually make us physically ill? One of the leading theories is the idea that as human beings, we are designed to experience stress, right? Experiencing stress is a really useful adaptive response to a threat in our environment. It's a good system to have. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to not be able to experience stress because they wouldn't survive well in the world. Experiencing a stress response isn't isn't harmful per se. What makes it harmful is when our stress response is triggered and then remains chronically elevated over time. That exerts a wear and tear on the body that we are not designed for. And what helps keep our stress responses active over time? It's me getting an email last night that I wasn't so happy about and replaying that email in my head, hearing the words spoken over and over and over again. And replaying that email today and tomorrow, thinking how I'm going to respond. This may or may not be a hypothetical event by the way. <laughs> but but it is our our minds are capable of 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 maintaining our stress responses, and when you get people who are ruminating or worrying for long stretches of time, that's what the mind is doing. It's 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 keeping us in that stress state, and that that has been shown to predict a host of physical maladies that range from cardiovascular disease to problems of inflammation to various forms of, of cancer. And so, um, the the link to our physical health is there. It's strong. And I think it's one of the, you know, one of the three big reasons to really be concerned about chatter.
1: The inner voice is something that many of us struggle with, some to greater degrees than others. And it may be that at various times in our life, we're, we're sort of okay with things, and then an event that we're unprepared for comes up, and you know, starts to trigger us. And this this actually genuinely happened to me about four weeks ago. I'm a pretty, pretty calm person these days. You know, I certainly didn't used to be. I've done a lot of work on this, a lot of uh, meditation, journaling, all kinds of things, you know, a lot of work on my own inner voice. But there was an incident in my family life to do with my son's schooling that, you know, for, for a whole five days, I realized that my my inner voice had just gone up to not even 10 to 11 and my wife said to me one morning, you, you are making yourself sick with this. And I was aware that I was making myself sick, but in the moment, it was actually really hard to do anything about it. So so for people who resonate with that, either now and again, or, you know, day to day, you know, what what is the aim here? Is the aim to turn it off completely? Or is it to sort of manipulate it and shape it so that it can work in our favor rather than working against us.
0: Well, before I answer that question, I want to I want to thank you for um for divulging that personal story because I think one of the things that can be really powerful is is sharing with folks that really ultra successful people we all struggle with this at times. I think this is part of the human condition, this this ability to slip in to to chatter. Um so so thank you for doing that. Um, the question of whether what the goal is—the goal in my mind is not to turn the inner voice off. The the goal is to harness it. So I actually tell the story in the book of a neuroanatomist who desperately wanted her inner voice shut off, and she she got her wish, so to speak. It, tragically, I'm laughing, but it's a tragic event. She had a stroke, and it temporarily took out her language ability her ability to use language, not just language uh, as as we use when we communicate with one another, but when we communicate with ourselves. Initially, she described the experience of not being able to talk to herself as, as liberating. Gone were the whispers and worries that made life unpleasant. But what also left her was the positive side of the inner voice, the ability to use language to simulate and plan for the future. I don't know what happened with your son, but I'm guessing it was some kind of problem. And I'm guessing you started thinking about it in an attempt to try to solve that problem in some way, to figure out why was this happening? What can I do? Right. That's your beautiful brain trying to weigh in on this situation to, to muster the resources you have to get to the bottom of it, but not working in your situation. We'll, we'll talk about why that often backfires later. So she lost that capacity to use language, to control ourselves, to, to make sense of her experiences, to plan for the future. And that was really unproductive. So the, the challenge I think we all face is not to turn the inner voice off. It's to prevent, it's to when we find ourselves slipping into chatter, to nip that response in the bud as quickly as we can to free up our inner voice, to do the wonderful things it evolved to do to help us plan to help us simulate to help us fantasize and and so forth and so on
1: yeah really powerful example and, and as you were as you were describing that Ethan I I thought back to early on in my career as a GP and I remember some patients who would come to see me they were they had been put on antidepressants and one thing they would commonly say of course not everyone but a, a lot of people would come back and say you know, I'm not feeling as low as I used to, but I'm not getting the same highs as I used to either. I'm I'm just sort of existing somewhere in the middle the entire time. And I don't really like it. I'd rather actually come off and actually Mm. feel the lows, but also feel the highs. And it's not quite the same thing, but I guess the underlying principle is quite similar to what this colleague or this neuroanatomist you're writing about. It's the goal isn't to To go to one extreme or the other you know because it's part of life isn't it that the kind of inner voice we don't want it muted completely we want to use it
0: yeah i mean here's a simple um simple metaphor here so uh let's say i'm i'm in construction right a hammer is a tool i have a hammer is an invaluable tool i used to build houses i used to take things apart carefully I wouldn't be a successful builder without a hammer. Now, a hammer, though, in the wrong hands, i.e. in my hands in real life, can be a massive source of destruction, right? So it's about how you use that tool. I, I would argue that the inner voice is a tool. It's a tool of the mind. And when we use it the right way, it can bring us much happiness. It can help us be successful and productive, but when used the wrong way, which is the and the manifestation of that is chatter. It can be enormously destructive for our health, for our relationships, for our ability to perform. So it's about figuring out how to use that tool. That's what I've spent the past twenty years studying, and, and, and you know, that's what that's what this book is really about. Um, how do you harness it um, so you don't slip down the the rabbit hole?
1: We're definitely going to get into a lot of the practical solutions that you you offer in the book, and. Ethan, I just want to say it is such a beautifully written book. It is it, it is so practical. There's so much research in it, but I really struggle to think of any person who it wouldn't help, no matter who you are in your life. So I really think you've done a, a, a wonderful job there. I, I really want to say thank you and acknowledge you for that. Before we get into some of those practical tools, it's interesting for me that you've been studying this for about 20 years so what led you to study this because then you you know you you share in the book also this personal experience you had when you'd already been studying this for many years yet in a, in a sort of similar way the chatter came to you even though you were an expert in chatter you still were afflicted by chatter in a negative way weren't you?
0: So yeah I've been studying this uh for twenty years I've been thinking about it for thirty seven I had a a dad who was somewhat unconventional he um you know he wasn't a college grad or or he didn't spend his life uh teaching about philosophy, but he spent his time reading about it in particular eastern philosophy buddhism hinduism um, i mean the whole nine yards and he talked to me as a three year old starting as a three year old about it Um, And one of the things he impressed upon me at a young age was when problems happened, I should go inside, introspect, find a solution and then move on with my life. And that was a, a lesson that I internalized and it really served me well throughout my childhood and adolescence. Things happened. I wasn't happy. I introspected, found a solution. I moved on. Then I got to college and I took my first psychology class and I learned that hey a lot of people it's not just my dad who, who taught people to do that a lot of folks somehow learn to do this as well but they're not always successful oftentimes introspecting turning our attention inward to make to reflect on our lives and our problems that often makes them worse and it leads to things like depression and anxiety and various other kinds of negative uh, conditions and so for me from that point on I was hooked the, the challenge for me became, well, why does introspection sometimes help and sometimes hurt? And I went to graduate school to, to try to work on that problem, and I've spent my career doing it um, ever since. And so then rewind about 10 years into my career, we uh, we published a paper that got a lot of attention. It was really exciting. I went on the TV. My parents were like watching with popcorn, great event, you know, um, and <laughs> And, and then a couple of days later i got a, a really hostile threatening letter in the mail the kind of letter that you know you no one wants to receive slurs threats drawings um had to file a po- go to the police station um, they didn't make me file a report but spoke to a police officer about it and for the next couple of nights uh you know i spent i spent those nights pacing the house with a baseball bat i had just my wife and I had our first child. I'm thinking to myself, "What have I done? Yeah, I had to go on TV. I got everyone in a mess. And you know, can I leave? Um, and and it was really deeply disturbing. And there is a bit of an irony there because yes, I was studying chatter at that time for quite a while, um, but incapable of pulling myself out of it in the moment. Now, one of the things we know about people in general is something called Solomon's Paradox, named after the Bible's King Solomon. We are much better at advising other people than taking our own advice. And I was living that experience of Solomon's Paradox in that moment. Um, Fortunately, I did stumble on something that helped me. It's actually a tool that I went on to study and is described in the book. I was able to get some distance, some mental space from the the experience, and realize I wasn't being objective. And I did it through a, um, through what at the time seemed like a strange quirk of language. I actually talked to myself in my head, like I was talking to a friend or someone else, and I actually used my name. and I said, "Ethan, what are you doing at three in the morning with a baseball bat? Go to sleep, you know." And and actually that talking to myself like I was someone else and using language to do it really helped me br- break myself out of that chatter funk. And maybe we'll get into that later on, why why that tool works. But it was a, um, a really powerful firsthand experience of chatter, one that I hadn't really had before. Uh, in general, I've been someone who's good at managing chatter. So uh, it certainly gave me a new perspective on the topic that that I had spent my career studying and I continue to study now. Yeah, thank you for
1: sharing that. What what I love about the book, Ethan, and, and your whole approach is that the, the tools within the book, right, really help us understand ourselves better. They understand, you know, we understand the inner voice. We understand some of our behaviors. We understand some of our adaptations to the world around us. And, and that's why I'm such a big fan, because I feel awareness is actually such a key part of long-term transformation. You know, we can follow people 's advice, sure, I can give a patient advice. great. they can follow it for a few weeks a few months but but at some point they 've got to really start understanding oh, I, I get it in this situation, this works really well for me in that situation, that works well for me and they they start to take ownership of it, and I really feel that the tools you outline help the reader find out what works for them because you offer um A whole range of different tools, and and as I look at the book, I see three broad categories. I see tools that we can utilise ourselves, tools that we can utilise with others, and then tools that actually help us with the physical environment around us. You know, that's how I'm seeing it. These three large categories, and I thought a way to progress this conversation might be to go through those uh, systematically. Start with the tools that we can use by ourselves, and you obviously, have just touched on one of those that you used when your own chatter was causing problems in your own life.
0: Yeah, you've summarized it beautifully. And, you know, um, one point I might add is that I don't think there are any single tools that are magic pills. We've evolved these different tools to help us with our chatter because I think different combinations of tools work for different people in different situations. So as you very eloquently described, I think the challenge we all face is to figure out what are the the, the blends of tools? What are these different tools that we could bring together to to rein it in? I think that's a big challenge. So when we experience chatter, we often zoom in on our problems so so narrowly. We have tunnel vision. We're focusing on, on that issue that's bugging us to the exclusion of really everything else that's going on in our lives. And so one of the things we've learned is that what can be really helpful in that situation is to broaden our perspective, to step back or zoom out, if you will, to focus on the bigger picture, which often brings alternative ways of making sense of what we're experiencing that can be quite useful. So, um, you know the the technique. Since I mentioned it already, giving yourself advice like you would someone else, and actually using language to help you do that, we call that distanced self talk. It's a kind of distancing tool, and this ability to get some distance or space from our experience can often be quite helpful. Uh, we call it a distancing tool because if you think about the context in which you use names and and second person pronouns, words like you. Most of the time we use those parts of speech, we use them when we think about and refer to other people. So the idea here is that when you're using your own name and the word you to refer to yourself, it's a kind of automatic perspective switch. It's getting you, it's it's leveraging the power of language to help you relate to yourself like you were relating to another person. And interestingly enough, we see people falling back on this tool during times of stress throughout history. Everyone from Julius Caesar to Henry Adams to the, the actress Jennifer Lawrence to my favorite you know, LeBron James. During times of stress, people seem to do this odd thing. They start talking to themselves using their own name. All right, LeBron, here's what you gotta do. Jennifer, get your act together. This is just an interview. And, and what we find with laboratory studies, experiments, is that when you ask the people who's a, who are in the midst of chatter to to try to coach themselves through a problem using their own name, it really helps them do that. Rather than thinking about the situation they're facing as a threat, something that they can't handle, when they're talking to themselves like they're advising someone else. They end up giving themselves pep talks. They start reframing the experience as a challenge, something they can manage. Ethan, you've given a hundred talks before. Why are you so worried about this one? You've never had someone ask you a question that has led you to cry on stage. It's going to be fine and so forth and so on. So it's, it's this small shift that really breaks you out of this threat mode. I can't do it. Oh my God, what's in front of me? And really gives you this sense of, uh, Self-efficacy—that you can manage this situation. Which, which, by the way, that's something that I think most people are trying for when they're in the midst of chatter. When a person's struggling with anxious thoughts or depressive cognition, many of those people want to feel better. They want to think differently about the situation. They just don't. They can't do it. And and the idea is like stepping back a little can help them follow through with their goal to actually think different, to actually feel better. So that's one tool. I, I love tools like
1: that because certainly in health and wellness, you know, I, my, my mission is to try and make it as accessible as possible to as many different people. And that's a tool that we can all use. Now, I wonder how much culture plays a role here. And the reason I ask this is because, you know, in the UK, my feeling is that if we see someone being interviewed on television. Let's say LeBron James, for example, as you brought him up. And if LeBron doesn't say, you know, I was feeling nervous, I was feeling stressed, but I got it. If he says, so in that game, LeBron was feeling nervous and LeBron actually knew what he had to do. I think the British sentiment is to be a bit mocking of that and go oh man, he really sort of has tabs on himself or thinks a lot of himself to talk to himself in that way, yeah. right? I don't know if it's the same in America or not, but, but your, your, the book and then the research shows actually, no, 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 he knows exactly what he's doing. That is really, really powerful at providing that psychological distance. So how would you yeah.
0: unpick that a little bit for me? I'm so I'm glad you asked. Um, so first of all, you know, We're related distantly, U.S., U.K., and our responses are the same. So actually, LeBron LeBron James did this during a live special on ESPN, our sports station. He was he was basically trying to decide: does he stay with his hometown team, the first team he played for in the NBA, or leave for a different team the first time he became a free agent? And so he's done this primetime special to announce his decision, and then on live television, he says. I didn't want to make an emotional decision. LeBron James got to do what is best for LeBron James. <laughs> the internet went crazy bananas about this, right? He's a narcissist, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And so, so yes, um, uh, the, the response is the same. couple of things to say about it. So first of all, in all of the research that we've done, we study how these silently, how these shifts, we call them linguistic shifts work when people do them silently in their own head. Not out loud, and I would encourage anyone who wants to try using these techniques to try doing this in their head or in the privacy of their own home, where people aren't around. If they want to actually audibly do it, um, and, you know, and you just—I just did it silently, right? You just think to yourself, using your own name, try to coach yourself through the problem. Uh, and the reason for that is when you talk to yourself out loud and use your own name, that powerfully violates social norms right? It's, it, and that's not just a UK thing, that's social norms in most places. And so there could be social ramifications of that that we don't want to have happen, even if there's some benefit the person themselves derives from talking out loud. So if you're going to use the technique, do it silently. That's the, the, the first point. Uh, the second point is, what's really fascinating to me about this phenomenon is how many people do it without even realizing they're doing it, yeah, right? It seems as though we've stumbled on this tool. We've somehow figured out that, hey, when I'm stressed out, using my own name to coach myself through the situation helps me. Let me give you another example. Malala Yousafzai, right? Youngest person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. I I think she lives in the UK now. Yeah, she does. Okay. So most listeners are going to be familiar with her story. In case they're not, just a, a, a simultaneously chilling and inspiring story uh captures captures her her narrative. So uh when she's a, a young child, she become she be she starts uh, to become a an advocate for young girls' rights to, to to receive an education. And the Taliban target her, and they they basically plot to assassinate her, and she she finds out about this plot. They they do try to assassinate her. They shoot her in the face. She recovers. She wins the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a wonderful story at the end. But at the beginning, it's about the most horrific kind of experience anyone can possibly imagine. Yeah. Right here, this well-organized group is coming to get me. Around the time that she won the Nobel, she went on the Jon Stewart show in the United States, a daily show, to talk about her experience and and he asked her about it and she she basically narrated what went through her head and she said she said something to the following effect you know i used to think about what what i would do if the tali would come to get me and then i would say to myself malala if they come to get you you should just take a shoe and hit them but then you would be no different from the tali so you also have to be respectful and you know she just goes on and on. And then Jon Stewart asks to adopt her because he loves her so much. But what is striking to me is we see this happening again here. She starts off, she's contemplating the most stressful experience anyone can imagine. Someone coming to assassinate me. She starts off in the first person. You know, if they what what should I do if they come to get me? And then the moment in her mind, the moment they arrive, she switches to coaching. Herself. Malala take a shoe and hit him. So you know, did Malala's dad, did LeBron James's dad, did Julius Caesar's father or mother teach them to do this? I don't think so. Yeah. I think we stumbled on the tool. And I think where the value of the science comes into play with this tool, many of the others that I talk about in the book, is that it shines a spotlight on these tools, which allows us to be much more deliberate about yeah. how we use them how we incorporate them in our lives. The, you know, there's an analogy here to medicine where many medicines come from plants in the forest, right? We we then through science identify active ingredients and we put them in a pill form and we make it very easy to to go right for the medicine when we need it. And the hope is that this book can help people do that as well when it comes to the inner voice.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really nice analogy. And, you know, what I love... About many things, including this technique, is that humans have been doing a lot of helpful stuff for thousands of years. And I, I have said before that I feel that that, that I don't know if every current generation of humans feels this way or not. But I, but I've, I kind of feel there's a bit of a arrogance with 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 us in the world where we think, oh yeah, we we've got this stuff figured out. Like with all our technology and our science, we we've kind of figured stuff out that nobody before ever knew how to do. But Whether it's in you know the 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 circadian body clock that you know ancient doctors have been talking about for years, and now Sachin Panda in the Salk Institute is showing, yeah, different organs are active at different times, or whether it's the fact that this self-talk using our own name now can be very useful at providing that psychological distance. It's great to have the science to back it up. Uh, and I find that very humbling, actually. Uh, the more different experts I speak to, it is incredible how many of the tools that we we're getting scientific data behind now actually are tools that the people have used for a long period of time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They're ancient. I mean, some of these are ancient tools. Um and the reason that the science is so helpful because I think our intuitions are often great, right? but sometimes our intuitions are not great. So, you know, and I'll I'll give you a few examples here. And and the science, of course, is the arbiter. The science is what we can use to test our intuitions or our hypotheses about whether something is helpful or not or benign. Um, A lot of people, so when I give talks on on chatter and self-talk, uh, most people when i when I describe what chatter is, and I say, "Have you ever experienced this? You know a sea of hands goes up when I talk to people about when I ask people, "Hey, do you think it's helpful to use your name to work through a problem there's a lot more variability. Some people say to me, "Oh thank God, I thought I was insane, but now I understand that this is a useful tool i didn't understand why I ever did that before. Other people have a different response like, oh, that why would that help? Would it help? And, and so I think there, the science can be very helpful for folks who don't have the same intuitions. But then there are other things that we often think are really helpful. And as I talk about in the book, there can be value in just believing that something is going to help you, even if it has no active ingredient. And you know, in the medical world, we call that the placebo. And placebos are, in my mind, to use the technical term, a mind blower. They are remarkable, their potential to heal. But we can also go beyond placebos as well and and make tools and and medications even more powerful. In fact, placebos are often what we compare different tools against. Um, And so sometimes some of the things we do may not work or may not work for the reasons we think they work. Um, Talking to other people being one prime example yeah. I want to just go back
1: to what you said about placebos. This is one of my favorite sections in the book, actually, that I've got a lot of underlines in because, you know, placebo has very much been, I think, undervalued by medicine. It's almost been a little bit looked down upon, but yeah, th- th- there's a lot of science. And, and you also share this in the book, just how powerful the placebo effect is. And actually, I've often wondered about, um, Different clinicians have different methods with their patients. You know, they can study the same science. They can read the same journals and see the same protocols. But we can often get quite different results with our patients. And I've always wondered, why is that? Why do some patients do what their physician asks them to do? Why are some unable to do it? And I, and I, it was hard for me to shake the conclusion that... It's not just the quality of the information you give that's important. It's the way in which you deliver it. And, and I really feel very strongly that as a medical doctor, but for any healthcare professional, the way we connect with a patient in front of us and therefore how they receive that information, you know, if they have confidence in me, I feel that they're gonna, and I say with confidence, that I think this is gonna really help you. I think that's gonna have more impact than the same intervention that potentially someone who they don't like their doctor and they kind of feel that they don't listen to them and they're a bit you know a bit frustrated do you know what i mean i think there's something in that isn't there
0: oh totally and you know it's interesting you asked me at the start of this conversation where i am so i'm with my in-laws and uh my father-in-law is a retired physician and he trained with a a physician by the name of bernard Lowne, um who is a really interesting guy he was a um uh, a Harvard-trained cardiologist who not only invented the defibrillator, but if that weren't enough, won a Nobel Prize for Doctors for Peace or something like that. So quite an illustrious CV. And you know, we're talking about the defibrillator, right? This is a a, a technical innovation that, when it came on the scene, was was. I mean, it changed. I would argue medical history right i mean is is that going too far i'm not a medical doctor but i would imagine um, the name is very loud so so fact checking in case i'm getting anything wrong but but he wrote a book that i read several years ago you'd think this guy who was was so brilliant and so technologically competent would be would be promoting technology and he was by no way by no means averse to it but his message was Compassion and the importance of, of 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 the relationship between the physician and the patient. It's not enough to do the tests. In fact, we probably do too much testing. Make sure put the stethoscope on the on the chest and and leave it there. Maybe five seconds longer. Put your hand on the shoulder and tell the patient it's going to be okay. I think what you're describing is very much was his philosophy. He just passed away very recently. This idea that other people can serve in a certain sense as a kind of placebo agent, a way of helping other people believe that they're going to feel better and that that, that's not going to necessarily make stage four cancer go away. It's not. Not, no necessarily are, are relevant there, but it can exert a lot of benefit in helping supercharge the effects of interventions and techniques. So I think it is a vital message. I think it's relevant to medical doctors. I think it's relevant for humanity more generally yeah. too. When I speak to my students, when I talk to my kids, I want to give them these beliefs to help them harness the power of their mind to do what it can and is capable of doing which is often we're not harnessing it to that full capacity
1: just taking a quick break in the conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors four sigmatic is a wellness company that is probably best known for its delicious crash free mushroom coffee Now, I first became aware of this company when I was in LA about 18 months ago. I was staying with one of my friends and he made us both some Four Sigmatic Mushroom Coffee, which I really enjoyed. I also noticed that I didn't get the typical highs and lows that you often get with some coffees. Now, they also make many other products that are designed to help you support your immune system. And the one I'm really enjoying at the moment is their Cacao Plant-Based Protein Powder. It contains lots of immune-supporting nutrients, and I'll often use it to make myself a cacao protein smoothie alongside my breakfast, or after I've come in from a run or had a workout. It's crafted with pure plant protein and contains seven functional mushrooms and adaptogens like ashwagandha and reishi, as well as real organic cacao. It contains no fillers whatsoever, and it's really, really tasty. I think they are a fantastic brand and they stand behind all of their products. Love every sip or get your money back. Now, I've arranged an exclusive offer with them on their best-selling proteins. This is just for listeners of my podcast. Receive up to 40% off on their best-selling protein bundles or 10% off everything else using the code LIVEMORE. To claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com forward slash More. Again, this offer is only for Feel Better Live More listeners and is not available on their regular website. Go to f-o-u-r-s-i-g-m-a-t-i-c.com forward slash livemore and get yourself some delicious plant-based proteins. Full discount applied at checkout. The show is also brought to you today by Athletic Greens, Now, nutrition, as we're all aware, plays a key role in our health and well-being. but it's not just our physical health. The right nutrition can also help us with our mental health and emotional health, as well as the health of our immune system. Now, in an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But the truth is, as I've seen time and time again with many of my patients, that many of us struggle to consistently do that. That is why I am a fan of high quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've ever come across. It contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, and I myself take it regularly. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, If you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a new special offer where you get 10 free travel packs with your subscription. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Let's move on now to what we can do with other people. How can we, when we are experiencing negative chatter that it, that you know we just can't stop? You know, we we often want to share that with a friend or or our network as a way of giving us support. And there's there's a couple of phases to that, of course, which you you beautifully illustrate in the book. Which I don't think we consciously think about. We think that oh, I'm not feeling this so good. Let me call up my buddy and talk about it with them. But, but you you're sort of demonstrating how that's not always enough
0: yeah I'm ha- this is one of my favorite topics in the book. Uh, before I go into the 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 people, I want to just say what you know with respect to the tools that you can use on your own, we talked about one, but I just i mean I realized there are countless other tools that I talk about in the book. And that exists. And so distance self-talk is just one example of the many things you could do on your own. So you want to be able to move back and forth between tools. Now that I've given you that, that, uh, that caveat there, um, how we talk to other people about our chatter, I think is a really interesting uh, topic because we know from lots of research that when people experience strong negative emotions, they're intensely motivated to share them with other people, to talk about them. There are very few exceptions to this rule. We tend not to talk about things that we experience shame about or trauma, but all other kinds of negative experiences, when they're triggered, we often want to share them. And our culture and our caregivers, they often give us a message which says, hey, when something bad is happening, vent it, get it out. It's not good to hold it in. And I think that's the 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 temptation that a lot of us have too. We want to find someone to just unload. What the research in this area suggests is, uh, it's not as simple as just venting our feelings. And in fact, venting our feelings often backfires and makes us feel worse. So he- here's how this works. Let's say I'm really struggling with a problem and I find, you know, I call you, we're buddies now. And I tell you about the rejection I just had from my 11 year old daughter. It's a frequent experience for me. and uh, and I'm, I'm ruminating about it. And I start telling you about what happened and what I felt and you, oh man, that sounds awful. Tell me what, you t- that was so nice of what you tried to do. And she said that, that's terrible. And so you keep on kind of getting more out of me and, and you're really empathizing with me. What that conversation does is it makes you and I feel really close and connected. So when you empathically connect with me, that validates my experience, it makes me know that there's someone else in this world who's willing to listen, that feels good in the moment. It strengthens our friendship bonds. But if that's all we do, just talk about what happened and what I felt, it doesn't do anything to help me work through the problem. It doesn't do anything to help me reframe the way I'm thinking about this experience that will ultimately lead me to feel better. So the best kinds of conversations when someone approaches you for for help with their chatter are conversations that actually do two things. First, you do learn about the other person's experience. You you need to find out what, what they went through, what they're feeling. And it's important for them to be able to share that with you to a certain degree. But then at a certain point in the conversation, when the person who's talking about what happened to them is ready for it. You want to start trying to nudge them to go broader. Hey, so that sounds awful, but but you know you've gotten in lots of little tiffs with your son before. How have you dealt with them in the past and have they resolved how have they resolved? Or you know that happens to me all the time. Here's what here's what I do in that situation. So there are different ways in which I'm trying to now break you out of that tunnel vision where you're just harping on the negativity over and over and over again like throwing logs on a burning flame, right, that just keeps it burning. So I'm trying to connect with you, but then also help you go broader. And it's doing both of those things that we find in research is useful for not only getting people to connect well, but also helping them work through their experiences in ways that nip their chatter in the bud. Yeah. This is
1: also a section that I I really loved reading about because you give all these sort of practical solutions on how we connect with others there's sort of a couple of things there really so from from one perspective it's like okay i'm struggling with my chatter i can phone up one of my buddies and talk to them and we then connect okay that's stage one that's great i I feel there's a supportive tribe around me i'm not alone in the world you know for social animals like humans that's a a really rewarding feeling to have that we're not alone that there's people around us to to help us and keep us safe. But sometimes we're we're missing that second part, which is the solution. How can we help that person think about this differently? And you said, oh, you know, um, you know, this has happened to you lots of times before. How did you deal with it then? That's just one strategy, isn't it? Because you can ask them a question, you can maybe provide a solution, although you've got to be very careful when you provide a solution. Yeah. I don't know if this is a male thing or not. I, a lot of my male buddies say the same thing. It's certainly Something I'm still learning in my marriage that if my wife wants to share something with me, then, you know, my job is, as she has um, very eloquently told me on many occasions, (laughs) is not to provide a solution. It's to listen and be there, her support and hear her. And it's something I'm a lot better at now, actually, but I but I realize in the earlier days of my marriage, I perhaps was quite quick to, hey, I, I know the solution here. Hey, this is what you've got to do, which, you know, I, and so I guess from that, it's like we've all got these different stages, right? Different people may require different stages of that connection yes. first, but then also when you do get to that sort of solution phase. What I really enjoyed also was that you give people options. And one of the options was what you just did in your example. But another option, which I I circled this morning, was you can help silently. Talk me through some of those ideas.
0: So let let me me break it down. And and you've got it just right. So first of all, there's an art to this. Uh, There's an art to being a good chatter advisor to others. And as a scientist... You know, it's, we're not used to talking about art, even though a lot of us scientists love art. But w- what I mean by art is different people may need to be in what you describe as stage one longer than others, right? So some, some of my friends come to me with a problem and it's really raw, it just happened. I'm going to spend a lot more time just learning about what they're feeling and what they're going through before I start to nudge them into thinking about the big picture. And I might even ask them, hey, you want me to... Can, can I offer a suggestion or do you want to just keep talking? I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking that question to someone else because they'll often tell you, no, I want to keep going or yeah, please God help me. Like, I mean, I've had people say that to me, like, please tell me what to do. You know, so different people will vary in terms of when they're ready to get from stage one to stage two. And we want to be sensitive to that, but everything that we've just talked about with, first validating an experience learning and then and then advising that has to do with a situation where a friend is coming to you for help with the problem and they're being explicit about it which i think is often the case like i'll call up someone and say hey i can really use your i, I need your input on this let me tell you what happened and then we go into it there're going to be lots of situations in people's lives when they see someone who's struggling but that person has not asked for help explicitly they're they're suffering alone um, and and for whatever reason they haven't approached you that's a situation where this other uh, kind of support that you hinted at which i call invisible support becomes really relevant one of the things we've learned is that when when we volunteer support for other people when it's not asked for it can often backfire spectacularly. This happens to me with my kids all the time. I, I, I tell a few anecdotes about provide anecdotes about this in the book. But, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I teach for a living. I do math and science, and I see my let's say my oldest daughter Maya struggling with her homework. And I, hey, sweetie, let, let me show you how to do this. Not not that way. Let me. It's you do it this way, and it's like Mount Edna erupts. You know, did did I ask you for help? You think I can't do it? Mom, you know, and then it always, it always ends with mom, actually. Um, <laughs> and then I'm in deep trouble. I just go back to my office at home and, you know, go back to writing books. Uh, so what's happened there is I've threatened the other person, in this case, my daughter, her sense of, of self-efficacy, this idea that, hey, I can manage this thing on my own. That's a really powerful Set of cognitions, the sense of self-efficacy. We know it predicts lots of things: are you know performance, well-being in life, feeling that we have control over this situation and we can do it. And when we inject ourselves into the equation, we, we can often threaten that. So in those situations, what can often be really useful is helping without the other person knowing you're helping. And you gave a perfect example. So when my wife is really she's you know, she's a, a dietitian. when she's overwhelmed with work and, and, and clients and COVID, I'll figure out a way of taking care of dinner and getting the dry cleaning, right? That eases the burden. If that falls on her plate, that's one thing less she has to worry about, that's easing her stress load. Or there are other ways you can help invisibly too. Let's say there's a student in my lab who's really struggling with, uh, with their writing. You know, maybe they can't, they can't put it all together in a way that's compelling. And, um, and so maybe there's a workshop on campus, a guest speaker is coming to talk about a topic. I'll, 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 write an announcement to the lab. Hey, this sounds like a great talk for all of us. Why don't we go together? Right. So that's a, a way of getting information to that student who's struggling, but without me shining a spotlight and say, Hey, you need to attend this because your writing stinks. So there are lots of ways that we can try to help outside of awareness, invisibly. And I think that's a powerful um, awareness to have when it comes to our relationships. And and again, the big picture here is we're we're talking about really breaking down how to get good support from others and on the other end of the spectrum, how to provide good support. We're breaking down it into bite-sized steps so as to allow people to be much, much more deliberate about how they go about seeking and providing support in their lives. I, when, I'm, when I'm struggling, I, there are like three people I call for help in my personal life and four in my professional life. And some of those people I call are not the people who I love most and who love me most because they just get me to vent in ways that is harmful. So I'm really careful about it. And, and that's the invitation to others.
1: Yeah, in the book you call it Build a Board of Advisors, which I thought was brilliant. And, you know, different people can provide you that support for different things in your life. And and again, Ethan, you know, that the theme that comes to me throughout the entire book is is just this, I guess, this intentional relationship with life. It's like life is no, no longer happening to you. You understand, you understand, even if just in terms of what you just said the ability to interact with people, whether it's your wife or your colleagues or your children, you know, relationships, frankly, are the the fabric of life. The 75-year-old Harvard study shows that it's the number one factor. The quality of your relationships determines how happy you are throughout your life. And a lot of these tools actually help us have better relationships, less conflicts. We're providing more support. And it reminds me of... um, you know I spent a lot of time teaching doctors we uh, with a with a colleague of mine created a course called Prescribing Lifestyle medicine and it's you know we we sort of got it accredited by the Royal College of GPs in London and we probably taught maybe two thousand plus doctors by now and you know I love doing it and and often in the Q and a at the end, this is when it was in person pre covid was it they'd they'd often say, you know Dr. Chash, you've been working for nearly twenty years now, you know what is one of the key things you've learned?" i always say the number one thing I've learned in 20 years of seeing patients is this, connect first, educate second. Because I've strongly felt, I've just seen this over and over again, that if, if I spend time to connect with that individual, instead of trying to rush to the solution, if I, if I spend time, if they feel heard, if they feel validated, if they feel seen by me, they then all ears. Often when I've got some advice them. But if I don't take the time to connect, I I feel that the advice goes, it's just not received in the same way. I feel the same thing on my podcast. I always take time to connect. I I don't feel it's, uh, I've said on someone else's podcast recently, I said, I feel that this podcast is about connection. If I can connect, any information you get is a side effect of me connecting with my guests rather than it being a, a pure information delivery service. And sorry to go off on a tangent, but it's just I really feel what you're what you're teaching people. You're giving the kind of the formula in many ways in terms of how to have these connections, how to be there for others, but also get the right support from others when we need it.
0: Yeah, it's it's far from a tangent. And what I love about what you've said is it's a perfect complement uh, to what what I talk about in the book and and what we've learned about. What you see as being so vitally useful for interacting with your patients, connect and then educate, that's the same principle that governs how to give good support to other people, right? Connect and then educate, validate and then advise. It's the same basic idea. And I think it speaks to the power of that idea. Um, so I think it's wonderful. And I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, the way that I think about what we're trying to do in the science in this space is provide people with a blueprint right for for how to how to manage this inner life that we all have yeah. that often transforms from a wonderful life into inner noise and what's the when that happens what's the blueprint that you can use to bring those conversations back on track i think science has has a lot yeah. to say about yeah. how to do that with pinpoint precision to be clear many of us have tools that we already use that work for us. The latest statistics on coping with with COVID and and the stresses it has brought, um, you know, look, this has been devastating for the world, and and rates of anxiety and depression are triple what they normally are. But about 70%, at least in the states of people, are are not reaching clinical levels of anxiety and depression. They actually are managing the stressor reasonably well. It's not to say it's not aversive, but they're doing it. And what that tells me is that they are bringing tools to bear to manage the situation. So it's not like we don't have tools. But the idea is that with science, we can get a lot better at filling out that toolbox, and teaching us how to use those tools much more effectively. Yeah.
1: And I think that's what that the book and the science does so well. And the technique you shared about psychological distance, people may already be doing that. But now that they know that there is science behind it, there's Two things. First of all, they're more likely to use it, I think, in the future, and, and secondly, there's more intention behind using it rather than it just happening and not realizing the impact. You can almost add a bit of placebo in there as well because it's like, oh, I know that's oh, going to yeah. help me. So just sprinkle a bit on top yeah. as well to to, to sort of that's to supercharge right. what happens. Um, when we're talking about the mind, and we, we said right at the start, what a powerful tool it is if we harness its power in the right way. I kind of feel the social media is is a we we can make a similar argument about social media instead of saying it's all good or all bad we go well hold on a minute there's many many benefits but we've got to be careful with how we're utilizing it and so on this subject of sharing um, you know, you know, we're going through some chatter and we want to share that with others. Now we can do that with our friends in privacy where, you know, we've got some boundaries, we've got some experience. Many people these days are choosing to do that online. And I actually see that there's quite a few prominent influencers here in the UK who you can actually see them doing their emotional processing through their posting. And it's, you know, I actually yeah. look at them with compassion to go, hey man, you know, I understand what you're doing, but it, I don't know if that's helping you or not. I hope it is, but my worry is is that you're just feeding that negative voice because you post something agitated, and then you'll get all the kind of negative uh, comments, all the positive ones, and you just cause this um, cauldron of toxicity. Whereas I sometimes feel maybe taking a bit of your advice and actually having a, a board of advisors and going to them first before you share it with the world might be more beneficial. So, uh, what role does this play? into the way that we deal with chatter uh, because i know you've also done some research on this as well haven't you
0: yeah yeah i've been studying social media for um at this point about 12 or 13 years really from when it first started to take over and and my views on it have evolved um, initially we published some work suggesting that it de facto undermines well-being across the board um based on the science that has now accumulated and and work that we've done as well, uh, I think it is is not right to say that social media is harmful or helpful, period. It really depends on how you use it. Um, Let's back up a second, though. Why is social media so relevant to chatter? There's work which shows that when we experience strong emotions, I mentioned this before, we often want to talk about them with other people. Well, what social media and the the advent of technology does, i.e. smartphones in our pocket, it gives us a ginormous megaphone for our inner voice, right? We wanna share it with others, no worries. Like, you know, Facebook, Instagram, you can do it in the exact moment that a negative emotion is triggered. You open your phone and you you write in what's going through your head. In fact, Facebook, the, the prompt is what's on your mind, right? Just share it with others. Um, that has some implications um, for, for what happens next, right? In the offline world, in the physical world, when we experience a negative emotion that we want to talk about with others, oftentimes we first have to find someone to talk to, right? And and so finding someone, that, that could mean in pre-pandemic days, like walking down the hallway, finding a colleague, making sure they're not meeting with someone else, or calling someone and and... You know, they may not be available, but something often happens when we're searching for someone else to talk to, which is time passes. And time tends to take the edge off our emotional responses, right? As time passes, we begin to feel better, think differently. Um, With social media, we're often tweeting and posting at the very peak of our emotional responses before time has had a chance to exert its healing effects right so we're we're often projecting really raw stuff and the other thing about social media is it strips away many of the empathy cues yeah. that exist yeah. in in offline interactions that serve as a kind of constraint that governs how we talk. So I'm looking at your face right now. I could see how you're reacting to me. In your voice, I hear the response to what I'm saying. If I say something that's hurtful or insulting, there's going to be feedback that I register instantly that's going to constrain how I subsequently respond. Oh, I'm sorry, did I offend you in some way? Right. Like Those empathy cues help keep society in check they help make sure that we're interacting with one another in civilized ways that promote social harmony. We don't have those empathy cues when we're tweeting and posting, right? We're just doing it into a little text field. And so that, that has the effect of de-individuating us, to use a technical term, and then make can make it much easier for us to, to say things to other people or share things with other people that we would never say or share to their face. And that's how you get things like trolling and cyberbullying, which can be really, really bad, right? They can be really quite harmful for society. Um, Other dark side of social media when it comes to chatter, we know that social media allows us to curate the way we present ourselves, right? So on our Instagram feeds, we're talking mostly about our highlights, not the low points in our lives. And when you get other people who are, Scrolling through those feeds, wow! This 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 oh, this, this person's really—they've done a lot. Their life looks pretty awesome. I didn't know you could travel to all corners of the world during COVID and still have a great time. I'm suffering at home. That can elicit feelings of envy, which drive our chatter response further. We're ruminating about how ah, oh, we're not doing as good or feeling as good as these other people. Um, social media and the last—the last thing I'll say about the negative side—it can also Create a kind of collective co-rumination, right? Like, you're, and I think we saw this with at least in the states with with our last um, election. I suspect with Brexit times were tumultuous in the UK as well, but. We're 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 putting out our negative thoughts and the negative news bites to our networks that are often like-minded, and other people are jumping on. Oh, that's terrible! They're awful! Oh my god! Did you see this? And it's a kind of collective vent session that can also drive people's negative responses and keep their chatter alive on a massive and scale. D- does
1: that just just to jump in
0: there? Yeah. Does it? Does that keep you locked
1: in? As I you know, that's stage one, you know, you're sort of, you're not able to move to solution. You're sort of, you're just stuck in that co-rumination cycle.
0: Yeah. And I think this is where the media, um, we we have a, uh, we did a massive study on um, coping with COVID in the States. This isn't published yet. We're working on it now. So everything I say, take this as unpublished data, but hopefully it will be soon. And we asked about how much have you, how much have you read the news? each day for for 2 weeks and and it was a longitudinal study we tracked people's anxiety over time and wouldn't you know one of the most potent predictors of anxiety was simply reading the news i think the reason for that is we're just tapping into this what's current and the negativity and that's keeping us in stage 1 as you're describing it's keeping the negative feelings active oh my god you know the 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 rates are even higher that people are dying, or this person is saying this, this candidate, and it's even worse. And so just keeping this chatter, it's keeping us away from moving into the solution-oriented mode. Um, So that's all the bad stuff. Now, there is a positive side though of social media too, which is it can provide us with a platform for getting good chatter support from other people, from a massive network of other people, and also for providing it to others as well. And so, um, you know, there, there, are, there are cases in which if you if your network is is properly constructed with folks who are supportive and who are trying to provide you with aid, this provides you with a way of doing that. So I see someone who's really struggling. Hey, I can just help them really quickly in ways that I'd never do in the offline world because they'd probably never even ask me. So and there are lots of examples of this, social movements that that bring people together and and into groups that are very supportive uh, and helpful. And so the take home with social media is uh, we need to know how to navigate this space to make it work for us rather than against us when it comes to chatter and our inner voice. If we think about the offline world, the physical world, from a very young age, our culture socializes us into how to navigate the offline world profitably, right? I learned at a young age, hey, these are the neighborhoods you go to and these are the neighborhoods you don't go to. This is the way to talk to other people uh, to avoid getting punched in the face. you know this is the way <clears throat> this is the way to do this and that. My parents taught me that. my schools taught me that. my buddies taught me that. We haven't had those kinds of lessons being transmitted for social media in part because it's so new. Ten years ago, we had no knowledge base from which to pull. We now have an accumulating scientific knowledge base that can tell us, here are the things you could do on social media that may get you into trouble, like just passively scrolling or doom scrolling, not good. Not good if you don't wanna experience chatter, but here are the the ways you could navigate social media to your benefit. And I think we'd all be better off if we start taking that science listening to it and sharing it with others so we can start socializing the next generation and ourselves into how to using it more productively yeah i
1: love it and again it comes down to intentionality don't just passively consume you know curate your feed the way you want it the way that's going to it's going to feed what you need it to feed in your life and uh, what you said about the news I, I you know i really hope that gets published because i have seen this i've experienced this myself you know i went through phases and still do i you know it 's almost something that is socially awkward to even admit. I rarely watch the news i won 't do it. You know why i 'm happier i 'm more present with my kids, more present with my wife i 'm like, you know what if there 's something big happening i 'll probably see it when I go onto twitter, but i 'm not going to actively consume it at a set time, particularly in the evenings um, and it's and it 's funny like when I used to travel you know we 're still in a in a full u k lockdown as as we have this conversation, Ethan. Um, but I remember sometimes, you know, you're away from home, you're in a hotel room at a conference, you know, in the morning, uh, you know, what I'm going to put on the breakfast news, which is like a novelty because I don't normally watch it. And you you start to see, oh, I'm starting the day with this kind of bit of negativity in my brain, which I don't normally get at home because I'm, I'm seeing it as a novel thing to do because I'm away in a hotel room, but actually becoming more acutely aware of the impacts. It's having on me, and and this sort of I guess leads to this this third big bucket, which is how much the world around us, our environment, influences our chatter.
0: So this final bucket, uh, for me, was was the most fun to research for the book. I find it fascinating that the way we've evolved. Tools exist all around us for managing what's happening inside us. And Rafael Nadal is the perfect way to kick this off. So as many listeners will know, Nadal is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. And during an interview several years ago, he told a group that the thing he struggles most with on the tennis court are the voices in his head. That to me is astounding, right? So he is he is competing against the best athletes in the world. Nah, their backhand, not a big deal. My ability to hang with them for a full, full match, you know, on Wimbledon, easy peasy. No, what he struggles hardest with is managing that chatter in his head. And so, what does he do? What's his go-to tool for managing that chatter? It's to to engage in these rituals. So if you watch Nadal, you'll see. Every time he walks onto the tennis court, he walks on in a very particular way, carrying one racket in his hand, his, his, his bag of rackets in the in, over his shoulder and the other. He then sets down his racket in a particular way, makes sure to turn to the audience, bouncing back and forth on his feet, always unzipping his jacket, aligning his water bottles on a diagonal between, between his bench and the court. He's very, very sequenced tightly controlled in how he arranges things. And of course, once he starts playing, you know, the, the ritualistic behavior doesn't end. He picks his wedgie out of his shorts before every serve and then curls his hair, it may not be the most hygienic to do it in that order. He's he's arranging, you know, his his shirt. It's highly structured. And what he says is, I order the world around me to provide me with the order that I seek in my head he's onto something because what we've learned and there are lots of experiments that support this is what he's doing is something called he's exercising compensatory control he's trying to compensate for the lack of order he feels in his head when we're experiencing chatter it often feels like we don't have control you know when you were when you were struggling with a chatter blip with your with your son like i'm imagining that the thoughts, were take, the thoughts were in charge, like you're not in charge because you couldn't stop thinking about this thing that was, that was bugging you. And the idea is that when we're in that state, which we all are at times, by ordering our world around us, by tidying up, by organizing, or by engaging in a ritual, a very structured sequence of behaviors that provides us with a sense of order that helps us feel better we know from from research that when people are stressed they tend to reflexively start organizing and engaging in ritualistic behavior i actually experienced this when i was working on my book i did something very unusual for me i i say unusual because as you in, in a moment you'll see in general i'm a pretty happy go lucky easy you know go with the flow kind of guy there are stacks of papers and books there might be an occasional pair of jeans and a shirt on the floor in my bedroom or the office. Like, no, nope, no big deal. When I was writing the book, my house was never as organized as it was then. So I go in the kitchen and I'd organ—I'd clean all the dishes and put the pots and pans away. I joke that at some point I, I, I was beginning to think that my wife wanted me to experience chatter because the, the consequence was that the house was looking so so M- maybe span. she thought you were giving her
1: invisible supports
0: yeah yeah uh, that that that's the that's a much healthier way of, that's a much better way, and if she ever listens to this, she'll like that um uh, she'll like that one better um uh, but but so that was me just you know you see this a lot people are are when they're stressed out they 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 organize things um this is this is this is one tool this is an environmental tool that we can use to manage our chatter, I think it is instructive that throughout time our culture has given us rituals to deal with chatter provoking events if you think about particularly stressful moments in life like when we lose loved ones to death or other stressful moments at the other end of the spectrum the birth of a child we think of the birth of a child as a joyous moment it is it often is but it can often be quite stressful too that's when they're most vulnerable historically and i think that's probably true to this day um Cultures give us rituals to engage in, right? Right? Grieving rituals, birthing rituals. And so we've again stumbled on this tool without knowing how they work. So to be super concrete here for listeners, when you're stressed out, one thing you can do is organize your space. Like that can be useful for managing our chatter. Or you can engage in a ritual, um, which I think of as a kind of chatter fighting cocktail, in the sense that rituals help us in a few different ways. First off, they do provide us with a sense of order and control because we often, rituals by definition involve doing the same thing the same way each time. So they're very ordered. But, but rituals can also do other, other things for us. They take our mind off the problem. So you see athletes often doing rituals before you know high stakes um, moments in their games. And so, so that's providing them with a sense of control You know, but it's also taking their mind off what's stressing them out. So if you're if you're if you've got the the shot on goal to win the game, right? Rather than oh, oh boy, don't I shouldn't screw it up, don't screw it up. If you've got a focus on your ritual of scratching your head three times, pulling your earlobe twice, and then arranging your shorts, that does take a little bit of your attention. It draws it away from what's bothering you. And then the third element is we often do rituals with others. So there's a sense of community and bond and support that can be really, um, uplifting. And like when you pray, for example, with other people, that's a kind of ritual that there's a sense of togetherness, which, which can also be, um, chatter fighting in, in a certain sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the story with the Dal is, is super interesting because, you know, I'm, 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 fascinated with sports and you, I read a lot of, a lot of things about different athletes and, you know, I've read something similar with Michael Phelps, not, I don't think during the meets, I mean, obviously swim, swimming races are a lot shorter. I think the ones that Phelps competes in, but I've heard that since the age of 16, he has always prepared for a race in the same way. Again, I'm not an expert on Michael Phelps, but it's something like an hour beforehand. He will go and do something like 24 lengths. You know, four of them will be this way, four of them will be that way. There's there's no variety. There's no, oh, what should I do today? No, it's the same way every time. And then he finishes, apparently walks to the changing room. And I've read also that he'll sit down on the seat, he'll find a seat on his left and his right that's empty. On one of them, he'll put, you know, maybe his swimming tools. Like a float, um, you know, a, a buoy, whatever he's using. On the other one, he'll put his stuff, and then he put his headphones in and listen to the same song. And then when it's time to for race time, he walks out and does the race. And you know, it's it, it's interesting. You know, Phelps, you know, one of the probably the most successful swimmer of all time, I believe. Tiger Woods in golf, I, I've also read, has got you know, he will rock up at the range exactly at the same time before tee time maybe two hours before and he'll hit he knows how many drivers he's going to hit how many putts these things are not left to chance and hearing them or, or thinking about them in the context of what you've just shared about how we can um you know manipulate our external environment to give us a sense of control it's hard to feel that those guys aren't doing the same thing they are you know i guess, I guess it's a great example here ethan i since last august all my podcasts have taken place in my podcast studio, even the remote ones or the in-person ones. And that's being redone at the moment. And so yesterday, it wasn't quite ready. We're like, oh man, I've got these podcasts scheduled. We're now in my living room. And I'm going to start the different setup with a different mic. And it it took me 10 minutes at the start just to really get into it because uh, it's not quite right. It's not quite what I'm used to doing. So I, I think I think the external environment it's it's massive isn't it in terms of our inner emotions.
0: Yeah, it's massive. I think you know one way of describing the athletes behaviors ah oh, this is just superstitious and but but what we know from the science is that they're actually they're onto something. Again this is an example of stumbling on a tool. Maybe we haven't even stumbled our cultures are often giving us these tools but but we're not quite sure why these things work but we think they do. And so now, again, we have the opportunity to be much more deliberate about this in our lives. And I think that is really empowering. Um, so, you know, I, I do rituals, too. Before I give a, a, you know, a talk to hundreds of people, I, I say the same thing to myself. I could hear like my wrestling coach from high school giving me, an, you know, saying, come on, you can do it. It's time to do this and do that. I repeat that kind of mantra. Uh, I take a few deep breaths and then I do it. And I do it each time and it helps. And and, and we all have our own idiosyncratic rituals. And I think that's an important point to make. You don't just have to do a ritual. It doesn't just have to be a culturally prescribed ritual, although those exist and can be helpful the research shows that you can often just create your own rituals and benefit from them as well. So this is just one example of how we could tune our voices from the outside in, but let's let's go through some of the other ones too, because again, I find this to be just fascinating. So, uh, so we talked about, well, two, we talked about rituals in order, which are related. Let's talk about awe. So the experience of awe, awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. My last experience with awe was a few weeks ago when we landed the, the Mars rover on Mars. Uh, when I watched that, I just, my circuits are fried. I don't understand how we managed to take an SUV to blast it off this planet and safely land it on another planet. Just using the term like interplanetary travel, that, that used to be like Star Trek, you know, like it's a reality. And and I have trouble understanding how we actually figured out how to do that. It fills me with awe. One of the things we know, again, through science, through experiments, rigorous research, is that this is the it's the, it's the ultimate way of getting distance, if you will, the ultimate perspective broadener, right? Because when you're contemplating something as vast as interplanetary travel, right? Like, oh my God, how your own concerns and worries, they feel a whole lot smaller by comparison. So experiencing awe leads to something called a shrinking of the self. We feel smaller when we're contemplating these incredible things. A lot of people feel awe when they're in nature. And that's one of the way that nature can heal and help us with our chatter. When you go through a, a walk in, in in the in a green space, provided it's a safe green space where you're not worried about, you know, getting mugged, you know, here are trees that have been here for hundreds of years. They've weathered all sorts of storms and, 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 and yet they're still standing. Like, how does that work? Right? That fills people often with a sense of art or looking at a great piece of art. How, how did a painter, how did you know, the Mona Lisa get painted this beautifully. These are all ways of when we're trying to contemplate that, something monumental of that sort, we don't feel like our concerns are are as important or as big as they previously were. And then that can help us rein in our chatter. So that's another way that we can uh, combat chatter from the outside in.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you say about awe is it's incredible. I mean, even the language we use, it's awe-inspiring, you know, it all sort of is feeding that that same idea. I love, I love that idea of shrinking the self, but we're often so busy and and I guess we're often so caught up in the noise inside our head that we can't stop to take in that. So I guess on that then, if we are too busy or the, or the voice inside our head is just so loud that we can't stop to take in the awe. You know, wh- wh- what would you say to someone who says, no, oh, I want to, but I can't?
0: Um, well, if you want to, but you can't. Great way to frame it. Let's go back to formula. I love formula. So uh, when it comes to managing ourselves, I think there are two critical pieces. There's the there's the want and the ability, the motivation and the actual Capacity. So motivation is you want to feel a particular way. The capacity is do you have the tools to actually fulfill that motivation? Right. I can I can want to feel better, you know, to no end. 10 point on a five-point scale. I want, want, want. If I don't know how to actually feel better, I don't know what tools to bring to bear to make that happen, I'm not going to feel better. That's one that's one example. Let's say you have another person who has, they know all the tools. That exist for managing their mind, but if they're not motivated to use those tools, if that you know what, no, I just want to sit and watch TV, or I just want to, I don't want to change the way I'm feeling, then they're not going to use them. So what you need are both pieces: the motivation and the ability. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they're experiencing chatter, have the motivation to feel better because. Chatter is an aversive state. It feels awful. We don't like this experience of being consumed by our thoughts, our inner noise. What I think we often lack is the ability, knowing exactly what tools we can then use in a very precise way to manage that that chatter. And that's that's what you know the book hopefully helps people do by by illuminating. And, and the I guess science. what
1: you were sort of sharing there about awe and nature, it's a great way of reframing. Uh, a break from work, or or even a walk, right? So typically we talk about them as you know you go walking, a brisk walk, thirty minutes a day. You know your heart will pump more blood around the body. It's good for your physical health. But we can actually actually start to reframe that for people and say, hey, look, if you're if you're really experiencing chatter and you can't stop, yeah, there are some tools you can try by yourself. You know that you you share lots of them in the book, including that psychological distancing. But actually sometimes maybe just go for a 20 minute 30 minute walk in nature if you got it nearby and maybe that will just calm things down enough for you then to engage in those tools that maybe you were struggling with Do you know what i mean it's part of the armory uh, and, exactly. and just as reframing anything in life is a very powerful thing to do to, to to help our mental health and reduce chatter even reframing exercise in nature i think could be really really powerful
0: Yeah, I mean, and so the way that nature works, I mean, I completely agree, and and you've actually described the the benefits of nature perfectly. Um, When we're consumed with chatter, consumed is a great word, right? Like we have a limited ability to focus at any given time, period. And when all of those attentional resources are devoted towards our chatter, it it can be incredibly depleting. It's not only depleting, it can also have a really negative... um, side effect which is we can't focus on anything else that matters in our life like our work or our families so so we're consumed we're depleting our attention when we're stuck in these states it feel you, people get tired people often feel really tired when they're stressed and worried about things what nature does is it provides a natural recharge to those you know the the attention that is consumed. And, and the way that works is when you're walking through a safe space, a safe nat- natural space. I, I always feel like I have to say safe because I grew up in the city in New York, and the parks in New York, when I grew up at the time, these were this is where you got mugged. So you know you've got to find a nice natural setting where you don't have to worry about those kinds of things, or it defeats the purpose. But when you find that park, the the greenery naturally captures your attention in a very gentle way you you start taking in the flowers and the hedges and the trees and 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 you're 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 engaged with them but you're not focusing really hard on it like you would if you're trying to solve a problem and what that does is when you have that kind of what we call soft fascination with the world around you it allows your your attention to replenish and that attention can be really helpful to have it to 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 implement these other tools that that I talk about in the book and that people will um, you know, have at their disposal. So, you know, nature can heal in a variety of ways. It's free, as are all of the tools in this book. Right? These are not; these don't require years and years of therapy, or 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 pills, which can be effective in some cases, but also have side effects. The idea here is that we could start using these different tools to very immediately help provide us with some relief yeah
1: just a couple of things i'd love to finally touch on ethan if we can um one of them was the idea that that i never really heard articulated in this way before was that a lot of the tools help us create a bit of distance between us and the negative thoughts but you sort of contrast that by saying that when you have joyful thoughts or blissful moments you don't want distance you want to fully immerse yourself in that experience. And I thought that was really, really interesting.
0: Yeah. So um, when we're, so chatter is described by being totally immersed in that negative state, right? In a very tunnel vision-like way, which makes it very difficult to think objectively about the situation. We're just consumed, we're all emotion. So when that happens, you wanna get some space, step back in order to then approach the problem from a more objective standpoint, which can be helpful. Distance self-talk is one thing you can do, lots of others. When we're experiencing positivity, at least for me, and and this, this is somewhat up to the individual, but when I'm really having a great time with my kids, the last thing I want to do is switch into objectivity mode, right? I want to embrace that experience. I want to bathe in the joy. And so I want to immerse myself in it. I don't want to get distance. And so this is the idea here that you want to be careful. Distance is not always good. It depends on when you distance. You want to distance at the appropriate times. Distance is really helpful when when you don't have perspective, but when I'm tickling my kids and, and having fun and we're wrestling and, and having a good time, like, I don't need perspective. It's yeah. just joy. And and so uh, so I think being aware of that can be yeah, useful it's a, too. It's a
1: brilliant way of thinking about it. Yeah. You're, you're wrestling with your kids. You're laughing. You don't want to reframe that. And and that sort of segues nicely into the, the final topic I wanted to talk to you about, which was kids. Um, you have two young kids, as do I, I talk to them a lot about my work, or they're always asking me, Who are you talking to on the podcast this week? Dad, I said, Well, you know what? I'm talking to this guy called Ethan. You know, I've been reading his book, and this is what I've learned. What do you think? But what you're describing in the book, I think, will help every single adult who reads it and starts to apply it. But then the natural extension for that is, is, Why do we need to wait until adulthood to learn some of these incredibly powerful techniques? So, can we utilize some of them with our children? Do you utilize some of them with your own children, and how might we start thinking about that uh
0: so so I think um we definitely don't need to wait to adulthood to implement these tools uh i i It sounds like you and I have very similar parenting styles um and you know I talk to my kids about this stuff all the time um, i i I've talked them about the placebo effects i uh, you know, there's a way of teaching them about distant self-talk. We've done studies with kids on distant self-talk. Um, it's given rise to something called the Batman effect, where we've we've seen that when kids are struggling with something, asking them to imagine that they're a superhero, like Batman or Wonder Woman, and then telling themselves to actually coach themselves through a problem using their superhero name. All right, Batman, here's what you're going to do. Or, you know, Wonder Woman, Dora the Explorer, choose your favorite superhero that research shows that that can help kids persevere under difficult situations. And so a lot of these tools, I think, do generalize to childhood. Um, And and I think we can help our children by teaching them about these tools and getting them to try them out and so forth and so on. The bigger question here, though, is given that a a science now exists in this space, right? Really, in the space is how to manage the mind. Why aren't we teaching kids about this stuff much earlier in schools? Um, this is an a, a issue that I never thought about until I was teaching a class at the university here, University of Michigan, and I taught a senior level seminar on this topic. It was great. We had fun. And on the last day of class, one of the students asked me this question. She was really irritated. She said, why has no one taught us about this stuff? until we're 21 years old and now leaving for the world. you know, It could have helped us back then. It's over now. And I said to her, number one, if you're concerned about not having any more opportunities to experience chatter because you're 21, fear not. <laughs> you will have ample opportunity moving forward. But I didn't have a good answer to her question. And it, it, it actually had an effect on my research because I started thinking about all the things we teach our kids about in, in schools, in, in in primary, middle, you know, um, high school. Um, you know, we, we like I remember learning about, like I love biology. I do neuroscience. I remember learning about the digestive system. Peristalsis really stuck with me, right? I love that concept. If you ask me how often that information about peristalsis comes in handy in my life right now, it's very infrequent. Like the last time I used that, Knowledge was when my, my younger daughter wanted to know how she can swallow things upside down. I had the answer. I didn't have to Google it, right? But that's it. But think about the mind, right? Like how often do we have a need to rein in our anger or anxiety or amplify our emotions? I think most of us have these, these, these needs on a daily basis. So why aren't we teaching our kids about how the mind and the brain work? Like, why isn't that in the curriculum? And so we're doing work now to actually do that. We've designed a curriculum for for middle and high school kids to teach them about the science. um, And we're evaluating what effect learning about it actually has on their lives. Uh, So does it help them perform better, have healthier lives, have better relationships? Um, I think it's a huge... Huge challenge to, to 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 try to address this yeah. issue.
1: Well, I'm delighted you're moving your research into that area. It's something I'm super passionate about. It's so hard to believe that it wouldn't have not only an effect, but a profound effect. But let's see what the research actually shows. And, uh, you know, if when this is over, if you ever are in the UK, I'd love to invite you back into the, the real studio for a face-to-face yeah. conversation to, to dive into that. But, you know, Ethan, I have really enjoyed my conversation with you today as I've said, I think it's a a fantastic book that would benefit anyone. I always like to finish off my conversations with actionable tips that people can think about. Now, I know you've mentioned many during this conversation so far, but I wonder just to finish off, just to leave a few final thoughts in people's heads that they can go out into the world and they can start to make these often quite small changes that I think will have a huge impact on the way that they feel
0: um, so first of all, thank you for the for the wonderful interview um, it was It was a real joy, and thank you for the very kind words about about the book as you know as a, as a fellow author, uh, you work on a book for so long, and it's really just you and the keyboard and so it's it's really wonderful to have a chance to talk to other people about it and see what kind of effect it has. So so thank you. In terms of actionable steps, uh, my advice is to uh, check out the tools that exist, read the science behind them, and then start thinking deliberately about what are the combinations of tools that work for you, right? Because the specific combinations that work for you maybe different for someone else and do a little bit of self-experimentation. I'll tell you that when it comes to COVID chatter and look, I experience it like anyone else. There are a couple of things I do. I'll try to coach myself through the situation using my own name. What would I tell a friend? I tell myself that. I do something we haven't talked about, but it's really simple to describe, temporal distancing. I'll imagine how I'm going to feel about this situation six months from now when we're all hopefully back to life Somewhat as normal, right? That can be really helpful for giving us perspective. I'll I'll check in with my chatter board of advisors, right? There are like three people I'll call to talk about this. I'll get that their perspective. I go for walks regularly in the arboretum near my home. And I may have begun to clean the kitchen more frequently yet again. Um, so so those five things work really well for me my wife does does other things that work for her. And, and again, I think the challenge here is not to find the single magic bullet, right? I've been doing research in this space for a really long time. I don't think any single magic bullets exist, but there do exist combinations of tools that can really yeah. be helpful. Yeah. And I think the challenge is to find what those tools are for you. I think
1: it's a wonderfully empowering message to finish our conversation on experiment and find what works for you. Not for your friends. They can experiment. They can figure it out. You figure out what works for you. Ethan, it's been a joy talking to you. I hope we get the chance to meet in person one day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> really hope you enjoyed that conversation as always please do have a think about one thing you can take away from today's episode and apply in your own life and don't forget to check out ethan's book chatter the voice in our heads and how to harness it if you want to support the show please do share this episode with your friends and family consider leaving a review on whichever podcast platform you listen on And of course, please do support the sponsors. You can see a full list with all the special offers at drchatterjee.com forward slash sponsors. But before we finish, I just wanna let you know about Friday Five. It's my weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity. It could be a practical tip for your health, a book, article, or video that I found inspiring, a recipe that I'm making, Or it could even be a quote that's caused me to stop and reflect. Basically, anything that I feel would be helpful and uplifting. I'm so glad I started Friday Five just a few months ago. I get so many messages from you. Many of you tell me it's a wonderful way to finish off your working week and get you set for the weekend. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each Friday, you can sign up at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday Five. And if you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written four books now that are available to buy all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics like mental health, nutrition, sleep, stress, behavior change, and weight loss. So do take a moment to check them out. They're all available as paperbacks, eBooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on. So you'll get notified when my latest conversation comes out. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.